Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Today's guest is Yuet Ming Tam, Global Co-Head of Litigation and Investigations at Sidley Austin. Yuet, welcome. Tell us about yourself. Hi, Mary. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So just by way of background, I studied law in the UK and um, I started out as a prosecutor in, in Singapore many years ago. And when I went into private practice, uh, initially I specialized in litigation and financial regulatory work. Um, with uh, Herbert Smith and Clifford Chance in Hong Kong. And then about 15 years ago, I was introduced to the world of FCPA when I joined Pfizer as their first regional compliance director in, in Asia. So that, that was my introduction to, to FCPA and you know, cross-border investigations. Wonderful. And you're originally from Singapore yourself and speak a few languages? Yes, yes. I, uh, I, I, actually, I was actually born in Malaysia. Mm. Um, but you know the Singapore passport is a very, uh, it's a it's a very you know useful travel document, mm-hmm. um, and you know because of the fact that I was born in Malaysia, I can speak uh, Malay and Bahasa Indonesia as well mm. as uh, Mandarin, and of so course that's, that's been useful. Wonderful. Yeah. What a a fantastic compliment there. What a suite of languages you have. Fantastic. And it comes in so um, so useful in investigations work, which is (laughs) what we've got. Yeah. (laughs) So that's one of your specialty areas, investigations. And um, I know that your your team does a lot of work across borders. You do work in um, the Middle East and and all sorts of jurisdictions. But today I wanted to particularly pick your brain about investigations within the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and while each jurisdiction comes with its own idiosyncrasies and local considerations, both cultural and legal, I'd love to spend some time specifically on China as it's a fascinating jurisdiction for compliance professionals, particularly when it comes to investigations. However, before we take a look into China, I'd love to hear from you. What are your overarching tips for successfully conducting investigations in Asia Pacific? So, Mary, I think, you know, it's, um, you know, because of the FCPA, right, uh, you know, about 15 years ago when I started my practice, when I, when I left Pfizer to, you know, start uh, my yeah, my uh, went back into private practice. I think at the time, you know, many people hadn't even heard of the FCPA, <laughs> um, and now you know, have many people who have considerable experience doing investigations in in Asia Pacific. Um, but I think one of the things that I still notice is that you know, it's very easy to forget that Asia is such a vast region. You know, there's so many different cultures, different legal systems. And even within, you know, one country, you could have so many different dialects and, and languages, such as India. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's, it's been a, a fascinating region for, for, for you know, and, and I've been lucky to be able to start, you know, doing investigations work in a region like this, mm. because there's nothing like being thrown into the, to the deep end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think what is, imp- what is interesting about it is, is how bifurcated the region is. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we... There are some people who assume that Asia, China is Asia, (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is not surprising because, you know, uh, for many companies, the the vast majority of the the investigations would be in China, just because, you know, problematic or, or challenging country, but because of the fact that, you know, most operations in China would be one of the largest Mm-hmm. Right out of any any jurisdiction, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, it's bifurcated into you know civil and common law systems. Um, there are countries that have you know legal systems that are far more established. Mm-hmm. You have uh, jurisdictions you know such as Singapore and Hong Kong and Australia and Japan on one hand, mm-hmm. where you know it's things are really straightforward, mm-hmm. and then you have all the others mm-hmm. um, where you know one of the difficulties is that you, the law isn't clear. Mm-hmm. So. I think, you know, when you practice uh, in, in Asia, 
quite often, you know, the clients don't come to you asking, oh, tell me what this law says, you know, what, give me, mm. Jamila, advise me on the law. I mean, we, we hardly ever do mm-hmm. that nowadays. It's more a mm-hmm. case of this is what the law says, but, you know, this is how you do your risk assessment. Mm-hmm. These are the things that you need to think about, you know, what is your appetite for risk? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, a lot of it has got to do with, you know, just helping the clients in terms of doing the risk reward, you know, calculus and deciding if, you know, do they want to proceed? How, you know, how do you want to set up your compliance program, for example? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, so it's it's quite interesting because, you know, we work with um, a lot of, you know, local law firms mm-hmm. and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes, and they're, they're fantastic, but sometimes, you know, you do get sort of advice that really just repeats what the statutes mm. say. And, mm-hmm. you know, the feedback from clients have been that, you know, they find that useful as a starting point, but what mm-hmm. they really need to do is advise on, you know, how do I get through all of that, right, to, to sort of turn it into something useful in practice mm-hmm. for their business. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing that, you know, I've, I've noticed about, you know, Asia is that, um, um, you know, data privacy, data security, employment laws, they're vastly different from, mm-hmm. you know, the systems that you will find in the U.S., for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's another thing that, you know, that, um, that would, ha- having, you know, being familiar with employment laws, for example, is mm-hmm. actually really important because quite often, you know, some clients might say, well, you know, if I want to collect data, right, employee data, mm-hmm. they automatically say, can you check the data privacy laws for us? But there are times when we'll tell them it's not the data privacy laws that you should be looking at. It's actually mm-hmm. the employment laws that will control this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, our, our steps, you know, for approaching an investigation, I mean, it really is sort of different for different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often tell the clients that, you know, you, they, they're not paying me for that one hour, mm-hmm. right, even though we charge, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. But for the fact that, you know, we've done investigations or you know built a compliance program 20 Mm. different times for other clients in that Mm -hmm. particular jurisdiction Mm -hmm. because sometimes the difficulties you don't know what you don't know Mm -hmm. for sure absolutely thank you for that and um you mentioned um data privacy is something that you keep an eye on at the moment what are some of the trends that you're seeing in investigations in the asia pacific region currently um, you know, I, I think, Mary, if you had asked me this before COVID, mm-hmm. my, my response would have been quite different because, you know, mm-hmm. I, I have noticed a change, but this is anecdotal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't done, mm-hmm. you know, there haven't been any sort of uh, studies, but, you know, based on the type of work I've seen, mm-hmm. um, I, I think, you know, because beginning from last year, the, the feeling is that I, I think before COVID, you know, we were seeing a lot more local enforcement mm. um, of, you know, for example, uh, bribery and anti-corruption and, you know, anti-competition uh, provisions. We were seeing a lot more local enforcement by mm-hmm. regulators, right, in the different mm-hmm. countries. But since COVID has started, it's as though, you know, I, I think, you know, that just isn't sufficient resources for mm. a lot of countries, right? Because um, to, to devote time to that, I mean, you've mm-hmm. got courts that are blocked up, you know, and, mm-hmm. and just things aren't getting done because people have been forced to stay at home and lockdowns and all that. So I've seen a vast decrease in local enforcement, mm-hmm. um, except perhaps in China. I mean, China is still very active locally in terms mm. of, you know, local enforcement. Um, mm. So there seems to have been a move from stamping down on corruption to, you know, now there seems to be a focus on the flow of data mm-hmm. and cybersecurity. Um, like I said, you know, this isn't, this is based on the kind of work that we're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it could be because, you know, people are just not going into the office. So, so that's why, you know, the cybersecurity world seems to have taken precedence for the moment. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. And um, certainly cybersecurity attacks um, increased steeply during the pandemic. So it would be a proportionate exactly. response for companies and regulators to, you know, adjust to the changing environment. So we see a lot of business communications in Asia take place within messaging apps rather than our official work emails. And I think that's been the case in Asia for a long time. Um, 
I know that one of the apps I like to use is WhatsApp. Um, if I'm talking to a, a friend in China, they'll often ask, you know, do you have WeChat? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some of the the typical ones. What's your advice for companies to best control data flow, given that we're now in this modern technology world and and have forums of communication outside of email? In your experience, is it still worth reviewing company email accounts for investigations in Asia Pacific, for example? So to answer your last question, mm-hmm. uh, it's yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not like 15 years ago, you know, where <laughs> if you did an email review, um, it's it's uh, you know there'll be there'll be a, a lot of uh, you know you find a lot of uh, evidence, very useful mm-hmm. evidence. Um, now not so much, but. Mm-hmm. We do still have, you know, situations where you do find very useful mm. evidence uh, from an email review, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes, you know, if the matter is is um, is sufficiently serious, we we actually do recommend or advise the client to take laptops mm-hmm. because, you know, that's where that the hard drive is where the important documents are sometimes kept, and not mm-hmm. so much in an email system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going back to business communications, I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that our clients are very much alive to. Mm. Um, particularly because, you know, I think you remember the U.S. Department of Justice, they, they did issue, I think, you know, two um, communi- you know, guide, guidance on mm-hmm. business communications, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and initially, the DOJ took quite a hard mm. stance on this, right? Mm-hmm. They, they seem to be suggesting that, you know, they, that the company should prohibit the use of such messaging platforms for business mm-hmm. communications. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that was changed because I think, you know, there was a realization that you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not practical. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, the, 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 I think the Department of Justice then changed that to say that, you know, companies should put in place appropriate guidance and controls <laughs> to ensure the retention of business mm-hmm. records. And I mean, that has left some people scratching their heads a little. Right. Uh, because, you know, appropriate guidance and controls, I mean, that doesn't really tell you much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, the, com- the, the, com- the clients that we, we, we've uh, worked with, I mean, they mm. have very, very different ways of dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are some, uh, very few, who have the, the budget to issue company cell phones mm. to, you know, their employees. Because one of the mm-hmm. difficulties is that, you know, you can, you can say, you know, no business communication mm-hmm. on, on WeChat and messaging apps. You can mm-hmm. ban that. Mm-hmm. But it's the enforcement that is mm-hmm. the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think some clients have issued, you know, personal cell phones or company cell phones to mm-hmm. employees and tell them that you have to use this mm-hmm. for business communications. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, the, the in, in practice, you know, in, in, in the investigations that we have done, we found that sometimes, you know, these phones are not used yeah. <laughs> much at all. Right. Like um, if they have a personal <laughs> one and they're doing dodgy stuff, why would you not use your personal phone exactly. to do the dodgy stuff? <laughs> and, and it's how clean, you know, these phones tend to be or, or little used mm-hmm. that, you know, um, tell, tell you something, right? But um, mm-hmm. I think the, the other challenge is that, you know, if you're communicating with a customer, um, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have the ability to send you an email mm-hmm. as easily as if, you know, as compared to if they were to use WeChat or, or mm-hmm. WhatsApp mm-hmm. Uh, or Kakao, you know, or Line. Um, mm-hmm. Right, because you know, if you write to a customer, sometimes you know, not every company would have you know like a fantastic, well-built IT system. Mm. Right, there are some clients, uh, sorry, some customers, local mm-hmm. customers who who have a system that isn't you know as as, uh, as sophisticated, and so mm-hmm. they just find it easier to use messaging apps to do that. And so, if mm-hmm. the customer writes to a sales rep, for example, mm-hmm. through WhatsApp, it's in practice, you know, it is very difficult for the employee to say, no, you have to write to my email, mm-hmm. my company email. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, a lot of companies realize that. Mm. Um, and and so I, I think, you know, we've seen some some companies will say things like, you know, if it's a substantive business communication, you should try, mm. you should use, you know, the company system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or official, you know, uh, IT systems. Mm-hmm. But I think the reality there is a realization amongst all these policies that you you can't really force people to, you know, to never use these messaging apps. Um, mm. So sometimes you know we we do a lot of clients still do impose that policy though. In practice, mm-hmm. they still have that policy where they'll say, you know, you you have to you 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 cannot 
have you know work um, emails or official communication on anything other than the email system. Or sometimes you know clients would set up their own enterprise WeChat mm-hmm. system mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. they say that you have to use you know this this application for communications. Mm-hmm. Um, again, the reality is you know how often do you are you able to enforce this? Mm-hmm. I mean, unless there is a whistleblower. Uh, or someone, a reporter who's willing to share the information, right? Who shares screenshots right. yeah. of WeChat communication with you? It's very difficult to find out. I agree, and and I I can see why companies are still persisting with the line of you need to put substantive things in email, avoid using mm-hmm. the messaging apps, um, including you know the um, text messaging um, on on iPhones, for example. Because what else are you left with, right? You know, you raise a very good point that enforcement is going to be difficult. But if you don't at least try and put down some controls, then you're you're not taking adequate um, steps to try and prevent wrongdoing from occurring on your watch. Or I guess the whole point is not on your watch. Um, and the other thing is, is if you do find out that they have been using um, illicit communications then at least you can point to being able to something that that would call for punishment if necessary even if you're not finding the exact bribery breach or whatever it is that you're pretty sure you suspect is happening you can still um, have a deterrent by putting in place punishment if someone gets caught for disobeying the rules absolutely so, Yuwet, I wanted to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty with you um, ab- about some of the specific um, China circumstances that are really of interest to the average um, practitioner who needs to deal with investigations in China as these types of things can come up and, you know, potentially cause problems or at least there's a perception that it's going to be a problem to being able to um, sufficiently conduct your investigation. So the first one I have for you is how does the China state secrets law impact a company's ability to conduct investigations pertaining to their China entity? I mean, the state secrets law has been around for a while. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, 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 you probably remember at one time, you know, there, there was a lot of press uh, and media reports about it and how, mm. you know, draconian it is. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the challenge for a lot of companies was that, you um, the way it was drafted was rather broad. Mm. Um, but I, I think, you know, there is a common misconception that, you know, oh, it is so broad that, you know, everything is a state secret. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've heard, you know, uh, things like that or mm-hmm. comments like that or, mm-hmm. or that, you know, well, you know, they can, it's so, it's so broadly drafted that, you know, they can decide, the, the authorities can decide what is state secrets, you know, after the, after the fact. Mm. Um, I, I don't, you know, I think, to be fair, I don't think the provisions are that broadly drafted. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at the provisions, I mean, I'm not going to go into details here, but, you know, they, they talk about, you know, any information that involves national security uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, the military mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, in, in sensitive industries, that's where you need to be a little bit more careful, mm-hmm. you know, such as mm-hmm. resources and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I think, you know, if you look at the provisions, they, they do make it clear that, you know, it only applies to information that has been, um, uh, you know, that has been categorized by certain agencies as state secrets. So it's mm-hmm. not one of those where, oh, you know, even, even trade information is going to mm-hmm. be considered trade secrets. And, mm-hmm. and to be honest, I mean, in practice, we don't actually come across this problem all that often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I, I and you know I, I, so I think it's one of those things where a little information is a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I, I've had suggestions made, you know, such as well, you know, this this could be state secrets. So perhaps you know you should send someone into China because we can't send it out of China. Mm-hmm. We should have someone go into China mm-hmm. to review the information. Mm-hmm. And I think my response was that, you know, if it, it is state secrets in the first place, mm-hmm. you are not supposed to be sharing it with anyone full stop. <laughs> so I don't think it really helps to send someone into China to, mm-hmm. to review. Um, and so I, I think, you know, in practice, it hasn't really been a major issue. Mm-hmm. But what is different um, mm-hmm. would be, you know, the whole slew 
of the laws that have been issued in the past few years. I think that mm. is going to impact investigations quite mm. a lot, mm-hmm. unlike the state secrets provisions. So the um, state secrets may have been um, something that at first blush people get worried about, but a lot of the time if you read what's there, the chances of it affecting the particular information that you're investigating is probably not that likely, although obviously what I'm saying is not legal advice, dear listener. Um, (laughs) Just looking purely at statistics here, (laughs) the likelihood. Um, And there are some new things coming in that would proportionately worry you more. Can you share a little bit of information about some of the things that we should be looking out for that could be problematic? So I've I've heard, you know, people call these the blocking statutes. (laughs) Mm. Um, And, um, you know, I'm... it's a, it's it's basically you know a slew of laws that that have come out over the past few years. Um, th- there are so many of them mm-hmm. that we've now done a, a sort of a white paper mm-hmm. for our clients. You know, just mm-hmm. to summarize what the provisions are. Mm. Um, and because you know it, they all overlap so much mm-hmm. that there is some confusion, I think, in terms of you know, how they work in practice. So we've actually done, you know, white papers, some summar- mm-hmm. summaries, really short ones. I mean, not, mm-hmm. you know, like a repeat of all, all the legal provisions, basically, because mm-hmm. that's not going to be of any use to anyone. Um, <laughs> so that, you know, the, 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 the clients can think about, you know, how do I change, you know, for example, our investigations protocol? Mm-hmm. Should mm-hmm. I, do we need to change, you know, how we, how data flows in and out of China, for example? How do you retain mm. data? So those, those are the more practical things that, you know, we, I, I think the clients find more helpful rather mm. than, you know, what, what is the definition of, you know, of, uh, of, of this and that? So I think one of the first provisions that came out was the International Criminal Judicial Assistance Law, mm-hmm. um, the ICJAL. It's quite a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think what is interesting is that this applies only to criminal matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, it, it says that where an entity or an individual outside of China requires evidence from China-based entities or China-based persons mm-hmm. for the purposes of criminal proceedings outside of China... Um, the you will need to seek, you know, make a request for the from you know a Chinese authority mm. to get that evidence or that information. Mm-hmm. So first of all, this only applies to criminal proceed proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the best way of thinking about this would be that it's similar to a mutual legal assistance treaty. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm glad, you know, where if you want evidence, you know, relating to a Chinese entity or person, then you have to go through a Chinese authority mm-hmm. for that information. So it's not that different, right, from from MLAT where, you know, if the if the US DOJ wants information relating to, you know, a Singapore bank account or a Singapore mm-hmm. entity, they would have to go through the Attorney General's chambers in mm-hmm. Singapore. Because mm-hmm. I used to deal with those, you know, when I was, um, uh, you know, during my days as a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Um so again, you know, nothing unusual about that. But, you know, if you have a DOJ investigation, that's mm-hmm. where you have to think very carefully about, you know, how do you produce information to the DOJ mm-hmm. if the information comes from China? Um, mm-hmm. Another one is the cybersecurity law. Mm-hmm. So this, this came into effect in June 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. And it basically requires, you know, critical information infrastructure operators. Mm-hmm. <laughs> again, a mouthful mm. um, to have in place, you know, all personal information and important data mm-hmm. within China. So this is mm. like a data localization requirement, mm-hmm. and it applies to operators of certain industries, important industries, mm-hmm. which they've classified as, you know, public communications, mm-hmm. i.e., you know, telecoms companies, um, uh, energy companies, water conservation. Uh, public services. So if you operate, uh, you know, information in the context of these industries or these companies, then Mm -hmm. that data needs to be kept in China Mm. unless you do a security assessment as to Mm -hmm. whether, you know, it isn't, would it be against the interest of of national security if you were to transfer that data outside of China? Mm. Um, I mean, to be honest, this isn't that unusual, there are yeah. con- there are many countries who have similar provisions. Singapore has one, and it's um, a high threshold to meet being something of of, of interest to national security. 
Yes, not everything's going to be, not everything's, everything's going to trigger that. No, but I think, you know, again, and, you know, rightly so, I suppose, uh, I think some people, uh, I think the concern is that, you know, what is national security, right? Because if you don't know state secrets, you might not know what national security That's right. <laughs> I just realized in my mind, like, it's so clear to me because when I worked at the um, the Data Privacy Authority in New Zealand, that is one of the defenses for withholding um, a, a data information request is if um, providing that information would um, compromise national security. And so, and, and, and because of my work there, I learned actually very few circumstances um, come into play and they're really quite specific. So in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, this is, this is fine. But I guess not everyone has been in the position where you're actually thinking very consciously about national security and then maybe even less people are thinking about, okay, well then how do you define a state secret? What falls under that? So that's a great point. Exactly, exactly. But I, I think, you know, sometimes for, for the clients, again, you know, this isn't something that comes up that often because, you know, we don't, it's not often that you come across, you know, that you're doing work for, you know, these critical information infrastructure mm. operators. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't really come up that much, I think, you mm-hmm. know, in terms of the, out of all the work that, that we we do. Um I, I another one is the data security law. So that one is mm-hmm. really fresh because mm-hmm. it's going to be it's it's effective September first, twenty twenty one, and and so you know this one basically says cross border data transfers. Uh, you know if there is any important data, again a security assessment needs to be performed before mm-hmm. it can be transferred outside of China. Mm. Um, and the definition of important data, unfortunately, has not been defined. Yikes. And that one, <laughs> I, I feel like that is going to be a much easier threshold to satisfy than state secrets or national security. That's that's true. Mm. Um, I, I think, you know, and but what is interesting, I mean, from a, the, the perspective of investigations is that, mm-hmm. you know, this data security law also says that you cannot provide important data in China to a foreign judicial or law enforcement organ unless a Chinese competent agency has approved this. My goodness, think about the bureaucracy involved <laughs> there, my lord. So, and this is not just limited to criminal proceedings. Oh dear, it's broader. So this is one that, you know, we are watching very closely mm. because, you know, they haven't, they, the, you know, the government hasn't released all the, you know, the important definitions mm. uh, and the guidance. So I think that's the one that we're, we're looking out for very, very closely. Um, wow. But I mean, I think in general, you know, we do tell, we do advise the clients to be careful by, um, you know, perhaps, you know, if you don't have to, if the if the review can be done in China, then do it there, mm-hmm. right? Don't Don't send information outside of China unless you know unnecessarily i mean try to look to try to keep it within within the borders mm. that would make but, things easier yep um but, and and the thing is you know i mean data localization is it's not a new concept because you know we mm. we do a lot of data privacy work data security work mm-hmm. and and you know th- there have always been countries right that have do- data localization requirements mm. for certain industries you know mm-hmm. um indonesia for example has got localization requirements for you know data relating to financial the financial industry mm-hmm. um so again this isn't that unusual mm-hmm. but i think you know given how important china is you know as a mm. jurisdiction for as a market for many of our mm-hmm. clients mm-hmm. um i mean this is something that you know we I, I think everybody is is trying to figure out you know what this mean in practice and so mm. i think you know we we are learning as we go along um just in terms of, you know, yeah, how, how does this translate? You know, do you set up your own server in China? Mm. Right, we're seeing a move towards doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just, you know, things like, uh, do you want to use an investigations team outside of China? Right. Why, right. why would you unnecessarily do that if you already have a competent team uh, within the borders? Exactly, exactly. Mm. Um, and and I think the last one is the you know the 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 personal information protection law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean this one basically you know it's it's based, it's China's overarching personal data protection legislation mm-hmm. because before that you know it was everywhere. 
data, yeah, it was you a know, data privacy was which was yep. was just challenging. Um yep. and so this one takes effect, you know, I think I think it's November 2021. Yeah, it's November. Yep. Yep. I th- I think I just saw something on that today that it will be yep. November. So it's quite similar to the GDPR. I think, you know, just to, mm-hmm. I'm oversimplifying it, but it's, <laughs> <No>. it's <laughs> vastly, but I mean, it, it, I don't think that's inaccurate. Um, no, it's, it's like the statement, um, this thing tastes like chicken. Uh, we can just, this data privacy law is a bit like the GDPR. Yeah, that's, I feel like that's fair to say. <laughs> but uh, it is quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, because, you know, what is interesting about the GDPR is that, you know, countries such as Singapore passing mm-hmm. laws that are very similar mm-hmm. you know um, mm-hmm. because they want to try and meet the adequacy provisions you know in the GDPR for recognition right, right? Yep. Um, so I, I think it's it's a it's you know it's, it's still really helpful to have this because mm-hmm. you know to have this new law because you know, instead of a hodgepodge of you know different mm. legislation yeah that's um, not easy yeah exactly but again I mean what is interesting about this one from investigations point is that you know, it, tra- it prohibits the transfer of personal information to mm. foreign enforcement authorities unless mm. you get approval from a Chinese agency. Mm. So that, again, is something that, you know, we are watching really closely yeah. to see what that means. Well, um, similarly, uh, I think I wanted to ask you about the blocking statute. But um, just before I do, you mentioned uh, that you've got like a raft of white papers on some of these topics that you've just been talking about. And I know your clients' briefings and alerts are really nicely written. Like they're really written with um, someone in mind who doesn't necessarily have a lot of time. They're straight to the point. They're straight to what do you need to know as an in-house practitioner. Um, Would it be okay if I collected some of those from you afterwards and popped them with your episode in our um, LinkedIn group for Great Woman in Compliance to share as a reference, uh, a resource, sorry, Absolutely. Super. We'd be happy Excellent. to, yeah. It's not legal advice, of course. Oh, obviously not. Like, And just to be clear, everyone, literally <laughs> zero episodes of Great Morning Compliance have been official legal advice. <laughs> Please consult with your own lawyer before applying anything that we've discussed. Um, so it's... The, the the China blocking statute, will you give us the purpose of this law and how companies should address it? Um, I, I, I think, you know, that's still under um, discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think it would be a bit difficult to go into detail on, on that. Mm. Um, Any general yeah. comment? Watch the space kind of thing? Yeah, I think it's more a watch this space. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that would be yeah, it's it's more that category. Yeah. Okay. So maybe do some preliminary reading on it, see what's out there for now, and look out for upcoming developments. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, um, I made you sweat with a little bit of um, substantive questioning there, and we really appreciate that. But of course, great woman in compliance is not just about what we do for our day jobs. It's about so much more about ourselves as professionals generally, um, women who have lives outside of compliance as well. And so I like to make sure that we fit in something that's not purely substantive. And so I'd love to hear um, a little bit about, you know, you referred to earlier that um, you were at Pfizer. So before you were in private practice, you were an in-house compliance practitioner. Um, What do you miss the most about being a compliance officer? Um, I, I think, you know, I, I miss being part of business review meetings. I mean, some people mm. may say I'm crazy to say that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and, you know, it's, um, I think the difference between, you know, in-house and being in private practice is that, you know, when you're in-house, you have one client, mm. really. Mm. Um, uh, and, you know, and you, you yeah, and, and, you know, when you do compliance, you are asked to attend all the you do more of the business side of things. I found that very interesting, you know, or even mm. sometimes, you know, budget meetings and things like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some people think I'm crazy to miss that part, but, but, you know, at the same time though, I mean, the, the advantage about, you know, being in private practice is that mm. I have, you know, so many different clients, so many different industries mm-hmm. um, that I could be doing work for. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, I, I, I have really fond memories of my time with Pfizer. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a long time ago, mm. but you know, um, uh, I, 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 it's it's one of those things where you know you 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 go to different countries and you know you're part of, um, you feel much closer to the management, for example, mm. uh, much mm-hmm. more. T- you know, on the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when you do compliance and investigations work, um, obviously it's not not the same. Mm. Even yeah, though you absolutely. do need to understand, yeah, the, the business side of things very well, it's not the same. Yeah, and um, one of the things that I, I like about being on the in-house side is you get the follow-up as well, right? So if I do an investigation with you as external counsel, you know, it comes to an end when the investigation would end, but went for me in house as the practitioner, I keep, I see more, I see the remediation go into effect. I see potential um, disciplinary action taken, the effect that, that um, any issues might have on the business moving forward. So you get that kind of holistic picture. But what I miss a lot about being in consultancy and private practice um, that is related to your, you know, having so many different clients doing so many different things at once that, you know, you're really kept on your toes with interesting cases and things happening simultaneously. Um, But I miss that benchmarking and oversight as well, right? So you're able Mm -hmm. to say, what we're seeing with our clients is this, whereas I'm like, yikes, I need to call a friend if I want (laughs) benchmarking information or I need to find a benchmarking survey with something that's recent. And I miss having that knowledge like right at my fingertips, like being able to say right off the bat and with confidence, yeah, other people are doing this. I'm seeing this as an example to combat this, like that part. And so I really wanted to end on that note, you had, <laughs> so that, you know, you would feel your grass is greener. Um, even though I asked you what you missed, like the, the being on your side of the fence is super cool as well. <laughs> no, no, Mary. I mean, I, I totally, you know, I'm just, like I said, I've, I've got really good memories of, you know, mm-hmm. my time at Pfizer. So, um, Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. And I'm so grateful to you, Uwet, for your time. You're a practitioner that I really admire. You're not only substantively strong, but you're just a really fun person to chat with. And um, I'm really glad to know you. Oh, thank you, Mary. Well, um, to wrap up this episode today, everyone, um, we have our advertising essentially for an upcoming joint episode. Lisa and I are about to enjoy our seasonal two-week break, but um, we have some homework for you if you wouldn't mind. We would love to ask you to send us for our Halloween episode, which will bring us back from our vacation time. Um, What is your compliance horror story? For Halloween. So our special Halloween episode will be sharing the stories that you submit. It can be about everyday stuff as a compliance officer, anything you've encountered doing your regular work. It could be about the job hunting process. It could be about a business trip gone awry. Um, I'm expecting this one to be funny and full of life. So don't hold back on us. And if you want to be anonymous um, because your story is a little bit um, horrifying um, and you don't want to be associated with it, but you think it's good for us to share, then 100% we will not name you. Send your submissions through to Lisa and myself. Um, You can choose to send to us directly or don't forget our Gmail account, gwickpod.com at gmail.com. Thank you all so much. And we look forward to hearing from you and your horror stories so that we can all laugh about them together very shortly. Take care. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.